When you think of church, what do you think of? What immediately comes to mind? Building. I think a lot of us think that, right? When I lived in the South, there was a church on every corner. It really felt that way. And a lot of times when we think of church, we think of buildings. We think of maybe the creak of the floor as we come in or that carpeting color my wife would talk about when she was uh, in high school, the really horrible orange carpeting in the church she grew up in and all of the girls hoping that it would be changed by the time they got married um, so that they could you know, get married in there and not see that horrible orange carpeting. Maybe we think of a certain smell or we think of lighting. Maybe you think of that one person who's always been there, right? Maybe when you think of church, you think duty. Maybe you think, I get to. There's a lot of things that go through my head when I think about what is the church? What is church? The first church that I ever set foot in, I am told, happened when I was about two weeks old, Bethel Baptist Church in Joliet, Illinois. I grew up at Oswego Baptist Church until the age of 16. And my initial thoughts are of dark, stained, old pews and crushed red velvet pew cushions. I think about Sunday school and Sunday morning services and Sunday evening services and Wednesday night prayer meeting. I think about Good News Clubs in Awana and church camp at Camp Manitoumi downstate in Illinois. I think about... Things like business meetings that lasted far too long. (laughs) I think about cookies and Kool-Aid and burnt coffee and a metal percolator. And those are things that come to my mind. I think about, in my growing up about church, rules and rules and more rules and, hey, let's tack on some more rules. And then the summer before my senior year in high school, we started going to Village Bible Church in Sugar Grove when it was a yellow metal building, pretty small. I grew up in small churches. And then I went to college, to Liberty University, and Thomas Road Baptist Church, which is decidedly not small. And it was larger than life. And I have to be honest, at Liberty... I learned to have a love-hate relationship with the church. I grew tremendously. I met my wife there. I made a lot of great friends, friends that I still have today. It was set on a path that I did not want, I did not understand. And at the same time, I also began to despise a certain anti-intellectual streak in the church and the more than a little reliance on politics which was kind of ironic because I went there and started out with a major in international relations government but God chased me there and in the church I found God which is really the wrong way to say it it's really that God found me And I have been a youth pastor, and today I am an elder, and I've been a small group leader and a Sunday school teacher, and I'm preaching this morning, and my life is 
thoroughly saturated in the church. And hopefully when you think about church, you think about some of the things we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Some of the things that Pastor Phil talked about last week in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. But what do our neighbors think about church? I think about the families of my kids' friends from school. Maybe they have fond memories and associations with church, but maybe not. What does our culture think about church when they hear the word church? If we're honest with ourselves, it's not positive. They do not have a high opinion of the church. They view us as charlatans, to be perfectly honest. Or, well, I want to show you a short video clip here. And this is, I think, how most people view the church. Hey, boss. Remember me? Jack Newton. Got a question for you. Why'd you make so many suckers? You say love never endeth. Well, I say love never starteth. You say the meek shall inherit the earth, and I say the only thing the meek can count on is getting the short end of the stick. You say, is there one among you who is pure of heart? And I say, not one! Well, Hello, Boyd. Why aren't you out signing autographs or dancing? I need to ask you a question. Um... I wanted to know when you plan to leave town. Leave? A couple of days, I guess. Well, I, I wanted to know if I could go with you. Well... I can do a lot of things. I'll earn my keep. You're a little too old to be running away with the circus, aren't you, kid? No, it, it's not that. Like... You made me walk again, okay? A lot of people tried to do that, but they couldn't. Hold it, kid. I had nothing to do with you walking. Sure you did. Everybody saw it. Look, I run a show here. It's a lot of smoke and noise, and it's strictly for the suckers. I've been pulling one kind of scam or another since I was your age. And if there's one thing I know, it's how to spot the genuine article. Because that's what you got to watch out for. Not the cops. You can always get around the cops. But the one thing you can never, ever get around is the genuine article. And you, kid, are the genuine article. Are you saying you think you're a fake? I know I'm a fake. Well, what difference does it make if you get the job done? Kid, it makes all the difference in the world. Boy. The movie is called Leap of Faith. It came out in 
1993. Steve Martin's character is a traveling faith healer. He plays Jonas Nightingale. That's not his real name. His real name is Jack Newton. You heard it there. He preys on people, people who want to believe. He doesn't believe what he's selling. Not until he's confronted with a real, honest-to-goodness miracle. A kid who can't walk, who suddenly can. The movie is actually fairly amazing because it forces us to confront a lot of issues. It forces us to confront how real our faith is. Are we just a bunch of suckers as... Reverend Nightingale says, or is there something more going on? I tried to rewatch the whole thing yesterday, but it was out of the library. So, um, you know, the way that Martin's character is for most of the movie, I think is the way that many people today view the church. It's a racket. It doesn't really do anything. And that breaks my heart. Because the sentiment is both true and false. The reality is the church is full of sinners, right? And that's great. Because that's where we belong. It's where we all need to be. Because all of us are sinners and we all need that. But at the same time, the hard part of it is that the church should be holding ourselves to a higher standard. We should be more than what we are. We should always be being changed to become more like Jesus. And all too often, we give the world around us, an excuse not to pay attention to Jesus. So when we think about the church, good or bad, whether it's our own positive, maybe upbringing, or the fake reverend here, if we're thinking about the trappings of church before we think of Jesus... We're doing it wrong. We should first and always think of Jesus first when we think of the church. And we should be living in such a way so that the world around us thinks about Jesus first. And that's one of the things I want us to see this morning. If you'll turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. Last week, Phil talked about and looked at several characteristics of what does a healthy church look like. He looked at what the community of believers in Jerusalem did, right? So today, we're going to look at another aspect of church. In Acts 3, we're going to see the church's unfinished work for an unrepentant, or maybe better, an unknowing world. It's a familiar story. Peter healing a beggar in the courts of the temple, and then preaching a sermon. And as I read this passage this morning, I want you to note the amount of times that Luke refers to God or Jesus in this passage, whether by proper name or not. 
I'm reading from the NLT, so it might be a little bit different than what you're, you're reading. But Acts chapter 3. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then, walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the lame beggar they had so often seen at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses to that fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed and you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold for the Messiah. That he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from from the presence of the Lord and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things. As God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, Anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for the witness of Peter and John. Thank you for the miracles that we see for the teaching that we gain. And I pray that today we would see just a little bit more about how we are to live as your church 
in a world that looks at us as most likely not much more than charlatans or suckers. I pray that we would see you more and see how we are to live more clearly because of that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. By my count, in 26 verses, God is referred to 29 times. Jesus is named eight times, God 13 times, Messiah twice, prophet twice, holy righteous one, author of life, Lord and servant. So as we keep on working our way through the book of Acts, before we look at the church, before we get to the unfinished work that we have today as the church, we have to look at Jesus. You see, before we can even look at the miracle that Peter performs or the sermon he gives, we have to start where Peter and John start. Where Dr. Luke, the author of this book, started. You see, we have to start with Jesus. Because if we don't start first with Jesus, we might as well pack up and go home now. This passage is soaked in Jesus. Not in buildings or prayer meetings, which is kind of ironic because it takes place in the temple. Not in the trappings of religion or rules, though they are there. The central aspect of this passage, the point of the story, the point of the church, is Jesus. If it's about buildings or services or rules or prayers or the right kind of people, if it's about living right or social gatherings, even if it's about prayer and scripture, but if it's not about Jesus first, it's worthless. Because all of those things are good. All of them, they're good. And they can actually be pretty fantastic. And none of them really need the church. None of them drive what the church is, and none of them are the reason for the church's being. Jesus is the reason why we're here. The church is first and foremost God's people, the bride of Christ, and we're His before all else. So we have to keep Him central. Everything that Peter does in today's passage proclaims Christ. And he goes to great lengths in what he says as he performs a miracle and in his sermon to point to Jesus. And sometimes we in the 21st century, especially if we've grown up in church, can miss this point. Because remember, Peter's audience didn't grow up in church. They haven't heard stories about Jesus since the time they were in the nursery. At best, they knew an itinerant Jewish rabbi who died a few months before. Maybe he was a prophet. But he was killed by the Romans in collusion with the Jewish leadership. What they have lived their lives by is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And you do not equate God with a person. Not a man. They were looking for a Messiah to overthrow the Romans. 
and restore the kingdom of Israel. And Peter's entire point today is to point them to Jesus and to say, hey, that person that you killed was the Messiah. And he was God. He was not the Messiah they wanted. He was the Messiah they needed. And he goes out, Peter goes out of his way in his confrontation with the people at the temple to show that God was who they destroyed. And that God is doing something new. Everything focuses on Jesus. So today, as we move into this passage, we're going to see three things about how keeping Jesus central makes the church who the church is supposed to be. First, by doing this, it orders the life of the church. You see, chapter 3 illustrates what Luke reports the church to have been doing in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. If, if the end of chapter 2 is the description of what they're doing, chapter 3 is the example. It brings the facts to life. I remember when I was in college, I was on the debate team, I was at a friend's apartment, and we were working on evidence stuff, and in the background, CNN was playing. And at the time, Greenpeace was a really big deal. And they had a report, and Greenpeace was literally, they had small boats going behind fishing trawlers and pulling the drift nets out of the, out of the ocean. Now, drift nets are these big, huge nets that are virtually invisible, and everything that gets caught in them dies. They wipe them out. And the people that were part of Greenpeace were so concerned about this that they literally risked their life for this because they got shot at regularly. But they were still willing to pull these nets out of, out of the ocean. Now, this is not about Greenpeace's politics or anything like that. The point is, what those people believed worked its way out in the way they lived. It was not something they just said, I believe this. It was something they did something about. For the church, for Peter and John, saying they believed in Jesus meant living that way. And in this ordering case, I think we see it in three ways. And so I'm going to ask my, uh, my daughter to come up here for a second. Um, she's going to help me with an illustration. So you may have seen this before. You get to hold this. So, the way that we live our lives, the way that we order our lives matters. Now, I have a bunch of rocks, and I have a bunch of sand, and I have a bunch of water. And I have one fairly small jar. And the truth is, there is only one way you can get it all in there. If I put the sand in first, there is no way I can get the rocks in. Because there's not enough space. But if I get the order right, I can take some fairly large rocks and put them in this little quart jar and fill up most of it just like this. And then if you take the sand, here, do it over the top of this so we don't get it on the floor. 
It's amazing how much sand can fit. And there's room to spare. And then what you find is that a tremendous amount of water will fill in the gaps that stay that are in here you can go sit down thank you and you can keep pouring and it's not done yet And if I would have started with the water first, there would have been a mess up here. If I would have started with the sand first, like I said, you would have never gotten the rocks in. But I'm able to keep pouring water, and it keeps bubbling down, and it keeps going. And I could do more, but I'm going to run out of time if I do that, so... The whole point is, the way that we order our lives matters. And if we don't order our lives upward first as the church, we will not be able to fit everything in. In chapter 3, verse 1, we're told that Peter and John were going to the temple for the regular prayer service at 3 in the afternoon. In chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, Luke told us they made a habit of doing this. Why do you go to the temple? What is the heart of this? God is the heart of it. You may have lots and lots of things about God wrong. And in, in this, we're going to see in this passage, maybe it's out of ignorance and perhaps it's out of malice as we're going to see next week. But if God is at the heart... If he's first, then we're getting things in the right order. Because as Christians, as the church, we have to start with the big rocks first. God comes first. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our wants or our needs or what we want. It's not even about helping others first. Because if we try to start there, we're going to get things out of order. Putting Jesus first, making Jesus central, orients our life differently. And it allows us to get the inward right and the outward right. Because the inward is next. First it's upward and then it's inward. Peter and John can't give what they don't have. They don't have money. That's verse 6. But they do have Jesus. What I do have, I'll give you. This is the same Peter who, as we heard earlier, took his eyes off of Jesus and sank in the waves. This is the same Peter who denied that he knew Jesus and fled at the darkest hour. This is the same Peter who, that we're going to see next week, in chapter 4, verse 13, is a clearly ordinary, untrained, unschooled person. But Jesus changed him. Jesus changed who Peter was 
He changes him from the inside out and it makes all the difference. And finally, in, as we look at how our lives are ordered, the bottom line is Peter has nothing to offer outwardly to this beggar without first ordering his life to God and second having his inward life transformed. You can put God first and then pour the water in and then try to get the sand in, but it doesn't work. Because the sand will clump. I literally had to put the sand in the oven yesterday evening evening to dry it all out so it would work right. If the sand is wet, you can't get it all in there. If you've been to the beach, when the surf is high, the water gets really cloudy. Right? Because all the sand is all suspended in there. If we try to handle the outward stuff, which we must do before the upward or the inward, it doesn't work. It's literally out of order. Putting Jesus first, making him central, literally puts our lives in order. Peter puts God first, and when he does, he goes to the temple for prayer, and he doesn't do it alone. He goes with John, and when he goes... As he goes, sounds a lot like Matthew 28 or maybe Acts 1.8. He's able to reach out then to the person who really needs it. And as we see in this passage, by reaching out to one person, he actually reaches out to more than one. And that's the second point. Because Jesus, putting Jesus centrally in our lives empowers the church to offer real value to the world around us. We live in a time and a place where people increasingly do not believe that churches add any real value, either to individual lives or to the society around us. It's actually not true. There have been studies that have done that show the economic impact of a church in a community, and it's fascinating. But when it comes to to the deeper issues, often they have good reasons to believe that the church doesn't offer value. And it's not the world's job to believe that the church matters. It's our job to show them. You see, think about Peter's situation. The church is a few thousand people, total, in the entire world. In 241, we were told that 3,000 people had been added to the church of about 120, 150. So 3,150, but that's months ago now. And guess what? The festivals are over and they've dispersed back to their, wherever they were from. So let's be generous and say there are 500 believers in Jerusalem at the time. Very few are power brokers. Very few are influential. And Jesus was seen by many, as we're going to see next week, as a rabble rouser. Someone who did upset the status quo. And as Peter says, or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, that Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So that's the scenario. That's what Peter is looking at. But I believe that Peter shows four ways that the church offers real value. And just like our illustration, they go together. And they go together, I think, in order. And the first is... The miracle, the healing, right? This is the first part. 
verses 1 to 11. And Peter offers real, tangible help to someone who needs it. And that comes first. Peter's sermon, the longer part of this passage, doesn't matter if the healing doesn't happen first. Why? Because he doesn't have the opportunity to tell anyone. For 40 years, we're told in chapter 4, verses 22, this man has lived with legs that, doesn't work, that don't work. Who knows how long he's been brought to the temple gates. We don't know that Jesus saw him. But as much as Jesus was around Jerusalem, got to believe that Jesus probably did see him at some point there. And he didn't heal him. And we don't know why. But the truth is, we can't help any, everyone. It's just, I mean, the logistics don't work. It's not feasible. But we can reach out to those we're confronted with. Peter doesn't walk away from this beggar. Now, when I used to have to fly out of Midway Airport a lot, and I'd take I-55, and I'd get off at the Central Avenue exit, and often right there at the exit, there would be guys with a cardboard sign looking for money. I mean, it was a place where a lot of times they hung out because they knew there were a lot of people like me who were going to be driving by. Or if you've gone into the city for a concert or a game or something, you've probably seen the panhandlers there. And what's the standard operating procedure? Avoid eye contact, don't talk to them, keep on moving, right? And that's absolutely the opposite of what Peter does. Actually, Peter looks at him intently, looks him straight in the eye and talks to him and takes him by the hand, the very hand that's reaching out for money. Peter knows the drill, right? It's not like he's never seen a beggar before. He's probably seen more of them than we have. He doesn't have what the guy wants. And when he says that he doesn't have any money, he actually is telling the truth. But he does one better. He gives him what he actually needs. And sometimes we get caught up in the miracle. And we ask ourselves, do miracles happen? Reverend Nightingale didn't think so until he was confronted with a real one. And he had no way to figure out what to do with it. I got to be honest, I have like this instant distrust of miracle stories because of people like the faith healer in that movie. I'm a skeptic. But I've heard enough stories, even today, about miracles that I can't dismiss them out of hand. Now, we hear them more in the third world. And sometimes I believe that God interacts with us in the ways that we allow him to. And if you believe in miracles, then he says, okay. But if you're in a place where a miracle is going to be dismissed out of hand anyway, well, why would he? And so, I don't know on how to deal with most cases of miracles. But 
I do think when we focus on the miracle itself, we miss the point. Because miracles were never the norm, even in the Bible. That's why they stood out. And more important than the fact that the beggar was healed today is why he was healed. He was healed for two reasons. First, because he needed it. But second, and more importantly, because it pointed to Jesus. People matter to God. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. God matters more. It's not arrogant or condescending to say that. It's not selfish or out of whack. In fact, it's only when we put Jesus in his proper place that we can actually love people well. It's only then that we can offer them what they truly need. The physical matters. It matters immensely, but the spiritual matters more. Because it's the core that drives the physical. And we see this in this story in two ways. First, because... After the healing, the man stays in the temple with Peter and John. He worships God and he stays there. And second, Peter uses the reality of that miracle to point people to a deeper spiritual truth. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. And when he gets ready and starts to preach in verses 12 and 13, what does he say? Why are you surprised about this? And then he says, it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. Peter puts Jesus first, even in the healing. As the church, if we are not putting ourselves in places where we are reaching out to hurting people, actual physical needs for whatever reason, or financial needs, or whatever those things, then we are not being formed in the image of Jesus. Jesus cared about people. And when we don't reach out to people who need help, we forfeit the right to deal with the deeper spiritual needs in their lives. Because the healing comes before the sermon. And when we do reach out to people... We get to tell the truth to the world that needs it. Peter's sermon is actually fairly short. It's to the point and it contains three points. And the first is a rebuke. Some people, some Christians love to accuse others of wrongdoing. Beat them over the head with the mistakes and sins that they they commit. They're always outraged about something. And anyone who doesn't conform to their notions are lower than low, reviled, and ridiculed. Other people avoid confrontation at all costs. Do not want to upset the apple cart. And both responses are wrong because the truth gets left behind. In the case of the church, Jesus and his work gets left behind. And after the miracle, Peter makes it clear. He pulls no punches in in verses 13b and 14. What does he say? This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate. 
You rejected this holy and righteous one, instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses to that fact. He pulls no punches. He lays it out. You murdered God is literally what he's saying. But he's not clobbering them. He also says, I realize what you did, you did from a place of ignorance. Could have known, but you didn't. Peter makes it clear that sin is real. He doesn't shy away from it. And we have to call out sin. We have to be willing to do that. And as we're going to see in the weeks to come, when you do that, it gets dangerous. But we can't stop with a rebuke. We can't stop with calling people sinners. When the church does that, we are rightly known as holier than thou. Because the truth is we all sin. And if we stop with the rebuke, we end up elevating ourselves and we take Jesus out of that central place and put ourselves there. And you know what? We all do it. It does not matter if you are a Hollywood mogul who champions women's causes and then proceeds to sexually harass and abuse them, or if you are a pro-life congressman who secretly tells your mistress to have an abortion. Both sides, both things we've seen in the last week. Sin is everywhere, and we have to call it out. But Jesus takes us beyond sin, and Peter also gives a reminder to the people. He is talking to Jews, the people of God, the children of the covenant, And they're living off the past and the trappings of faithfulness. And today, culturally, we're living off the past. The concern for human rights or the compassion for the less fortunate. Those things happened because the church happened. The Greek and Roman culture that gave rise to a lot of Western culture, art and architecture and philosophy and even government, had a pretty horrendous view of human life. And you do not get the compassion you see today, even by people who do not believe in God without the church having been there. It doesn't work because the things that came before don't allow for it. But Peter reminds the people of who they were, of what they've been taught and what God has said and of the Messiah and a prophet like Moses. And in chapter or 3, verses 22 and 23, he reminds them Listen to the prophet or be cut off. All of the prophets, from the first prophet Samuel, all the way through to the last. All the Old Testament scripture, that's what he's saying. It all points to Jesus. And part of preaching to an unrepentant world is telling them truth. Reminding them of that truth. After we rebuke, we have to set the stage to give context to say, hey, There's more to the story. Not to manipulate or cause an emotional high like the faith healer did. But to show them the real deal because it makes all the difference. And that difference is hope. You see, the Bible presents a very unique story. What people mean for evil, God means for good. All of our schemes and our plans, all of our selfishness, all of our sin, God's got that. There's nothing that you or I or any individual or group of humans can do to thwart God. And that is true hope. 
In verse 18, Peter says God's fulfilling what the prophets said. The Messiah would suffer. And for a time, now, you will get times of refreshment, seasons of refreshment. That's the here and now. We get those. Yes, there's suffering now, but there are also great times as well. And that's real. And then in verse 20, ultimately there will be a restoration. And Jesus will return. And things, everything will be made right. And Peter reminds the people of Israel of who they are and gives them hope. In verses 25 and 26. That is the message of Jesus. The message of hope. We are all broken. Everyone. But we are made in the image of God. And he has come for us in the person of Jesus. The one who death could not hold the very author of life, Peter says. The one who heals the wounds of everyone when we are willing. It's interesting in verse 16, Peter says that faith in the name of Jesus has made this man well. It's not a mantra. It's very interesting because we don't know if it's Peter's faith or the man's faith. We don't even know this guy's name. And I think that the way that Luke wrote it is on purpose. Because the point is Jesus, not what the specific cause of the miracle is. The point is it's Jesus whose power leads to a healing. Faith healers tell people that aren't healed that they didn't have enough faith, which entirely misses the point. The point of healing is the one who did the healing. It's not about, look at him, he was lame. The kid in the clip was lame. He was on crutches. He couldn't walk on his own, and now he can. But the point wasn't him. The point isn't, look at her, she had cancer, and now she doesn't. The point is, look at what Jesus did. Because the genuine article makes all the difference. So finally, keeping Jesus central creates an opportunity for reflection and repentance. Peter calls the people of Israel to repent of their sins. Turn to God so that their sins may be wiped away. So that they can be one with God as he as always intended. And when we make Jesus central, we're able to get beyond the rules and the arguments about who's more moral. And we come to a place where our lives are properly ordered. And it's amazing how much you can fit in. It gets heavy. That's what happens when we do it the right way. We're able to keep the upward first. Our inward lives change and then we can reach out to others like him to be his hands and feet. When we keep Jesus central as the church, we earn the right to reach out to others, to tell the truth and heal and rebuke and remind and offer hope. And we earn the right to call our friends and neighbors, our family, even our enemies, to repentance. If Jesus isn't central, we lose that right. So today, I want us as the church to ask ourselves, individually, corporately, are we Reverend Nightingale? 
Are we putting on a show? Perhaps we don't even believe it. Or are we putting Jesus in that central spot? Peter lived with Jesus for three years. And it took the resurrection for the light to go on. And I'm sometimes afraid that, much like the people of Israel in the first century, that the church inoculates its own people against God. We have the right words and the right language, and we forget the reason why we do this. And Jesus is first. Do we believe it? Do we live it? Because as Reverend Nightingale said, the genuine article makes all the difference.